Thank you. All right. If greed is your politics, then this is a political sermon. I hope it's not a political sermon and that greed is not your politics. Because you may think from the beginning that the, the sermon is about, or the scripture is about, Jesus said, I'm not going to be a divider or an arbitrator of you. I'm not going to be your financial counselor or your, your, your family intervention specialist. Uh, I'm not just like with Martha and Mary the last time I preached about uh, telling the other sibling to do what I want, where I'm not going to tell you and your brother how to get along with money. But later on, Jesus says to everybody, he really knew what that was about. It wasn't about fairness or judicial process or financial planning or any of that stuff. It was about greed. And he tells a story about a man with the land that produces very well. And what does he do about it? Now, some people will hide their greed, not so much and in di- in divide your inheritance among me, among my brother, but they will say this, have you ever heard this? Have you said it? Don't raise your hand if you did, because it's the bad thing. If you said, the church needs to run like a business. You ever hear that? We don't to run the church like a business, or we have to run the country like a business. Uh, that is usually... A cover-up for greed. Because what is the business then if you say the church or the country or the nonprofit or the family has to run like a business? Who's the customer? What's the product? Who do you serve? Well, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're running a government like a business, well, then you have the product of governmental services and and graph and corruption and all that, and you give it to the highest bidder, the one who will pay you the most, and that's you in, and the rest of you forget about it. You know, hey, if you want some government services, how about giving some money? You know, this is a business. I'm not in it for my health. The same thing with the church. Running a church like a business, that usually means I'm giving a lot of money to this church, and I'm not getting a lot back. You've got to run like a business. You know, pay, pay, take care of your paying customers not what the church is about. Church is one of the only institutions that exists primarily for those outside the institution. And that's not very businessy. 12-step has this tradition as well. 12-step's tradition, you, you probably wonder, in a 12-step group, any of the recovery groups, you may have said to yourself, hey, what's the recovery group is for? Well, it's for those folks that go, those poor folks that go to the recovery group to recover. That's their purpose, their meaning, and their mission. I mean, they're the paying customers, right? No, it says right in every recovery group, the tradition is that their number one purpose is for those that are still suffering. That's not very businessy. It's for the other people, not the customers. It's not so much the problem with money. Or with riches. You say, oh, well, he's just all against the riches. He's all about terrible, awful things. But no, it's not about that. It's about who does, who does that serve? Who is it for? The, 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 the little zing right at the end. You know, and those things you have prepared, who are, will they be for? You know, that is a good question to ask before you die. 
All these things that I have prepared, who are they for? Who is my life for? Who are my riches for? What am I here for? Warren Buffett, who we talk about, said that has a philosophy. He's one of the world's, I don't know what number he is. He's like eight or something. Uh, he's getting up to $100 billion. Uh, he says his money is not his. And he tells other billionaires and millionaires, the money is not there, theirs. It's just entrusted to us while we're here. He knows and he thinks about the next generations, about what's going on with the money. You know, and running things like a business doesn't work for the government. The government does things that no one wants to do, that no one can find a profit in, that no one can find enough people to do it. And there's all sorts of things that, that only the government could do. The interstate highway system is an absolute loser in terms of building projects and things. To have an interstate highway system that goes from coast to coast, up and down, north and south, maintained is a government job no not profit business would ever take on because there's no money in it. You can't have enough tolls to keep back on the money. They keep trying to do that and they keep failing. But, you know, once we got the interstate highway system, boy, trucking really took out, shipping really turned out. Amazon would not be possible without the interstate highway system. And the government does that. Ever heard of the internet? Nobody wanted to do the internet. It was ridiculous. Nobody wanted to do that. There was no money in there. I remember in 1990, they were saying, what's good to the internet? Who's going to look at this stuff? But the government saw something in it and put it in there. AT&T wouldn't do it. There wasn't any money in it. They had plenty of money in the telephone and, and in their lease lands. And they got plenty of money. They had no interest in getting the internet to everybody. <laughs> Who wants that? There's no money there. The government did it called ARPANET and set it up and made the protocols and promoted it and did that. When I started using the internet, imagine if you will how old I am. When I started using the internet, you are not allowed to talk about money. You are not allowed to talk about products. You are not allowed to talk about uh, prices or anything. It was like community radio. You couldn't make money on the internet because it belonged to the government. I know. But then the government says, okay, we got it going. You see how great it is? We got it done. Go for it. And gave it over to private industry. But the private industry, the government as a business, would not have done that because it was a big money loser to make it. Ever heard of Hoover Dam? Nobody wanted to do that project. Way too much money. The government did it. And electrified the nation along with other, other projects. Rural electrification, no one wants to run electric line to little, little towns and little farms and everywhere. The government says in rural electrification and co-ops, they made electricity go out through the entire country. And the same thing we're trying to do with telecommunications today, to go out through the entire country. There's no money in it. There's no profit in it. There's, who's the customer? They can't pay. If all the government had to do, Obama said this and got into so much trouble because he didn't know what he was doing. Obama says, if I just had to make widgets or an app, that would be easy. Because I would just have to worry about satisfying my customer about whether they would buy the app or not. But when I make a widget or an app, I'm in the government, I have to worry about everybody. I have to worry about the poor people who can't afford the widget and the app. What are they going to do? I have to worry about unintended consequences, about the environment, about uh, our society, about economics, about the next generations. I have to worry about a lot more than selling the widget at the store. And I just can't go bankrupt and walk away. It's a lot harder 
to be good government than it is to be business. Because it's not all about greed. It's about asking the question, who is this for? Is it for the paying customers, the one that has the money? Or is it for everyone, for the next generation, for the greater good, for the culture, for all that? Look at what he said in that scripture, back to the scripture. I knew you never thought I'd get there. But look at all the scriptures he said. What am I going to do? How many times does he say I and my? What am I going to do? What am I going to do with all this? What am I going to do? Say to myself, he even talks to himself. He talks, the only other person he talks to is himself. He says the soul. Now, I don't know about economics and farming business back in, uh, back in uh, Jesus' times, but I'm thinking there's a couple people working that land. I'm thinking maybe one or two. I'm thinking there were some people selling this stuff. I'm thinking there were some people keeping track of the ledgers and all that. I'm thinking there were some people driving the wagons to market. I'm thinking there was a lot of people. How about those people? How about the people that built the barns or tore them down and built bigger ones? What about them? What did they do? He didn't say anything about them. You know, you fool. The things you have prepared, who would they come from us? Now, if your politics are about greed, you're going to say this is a politi- politician story. But I want to tell you that the idea of what do we do with our wealth is very biblical. About personalized and with society. What do we do with our wealth? Do we build bigger and bigger barns so that, more, so that less and less people can have more and more? There's all sorts of statistics, but the one I like is pretty close. It would be nice if it was exact, but it's really close to 50% of the world's wealth. 50% of the world's wealth. You put, you got a barn, 50% of the barn go to 1% of the people. All right? 50% of the world's wealth goes to 1% of the people. Well, they earned it, or I don't know, whatever you want to say. I don't know, is that the way we want it? Is that the way we want to do that? What about the other side? There's another 51%. Did you know that? 1% of the world's wealth, 1% of the world's wealth, remember that 1% of the people had 50% of the wealth. If you look at the other end, the 1% of the wealth pretty much goes to 50% of the world. So 50% of the world's population is dividing up 1% of the wealth. Why 1% of the people is putting it in the big barn of 50%. Is that the way we want it? Is that the way Jesus wants it? Is that showing that we're not in greed, that we're thinking about that? There's a wonderful quote. And remember, why did that guy... Build bigger barns. It was for security, wasn't it? He says, what am I to do? And he, he said at the end, he goes, well, I'm set now. I can eat, drink, and be merry. I got all I want. That's my security. And what he feared was the loss of security. But let's take a look at the video. If I could jump on Lee. Lee, can you run that video? I should have a clicker or something. I don't know. I have a video for the sermon. It's a new thing I'm doing. I don't know. Ooh, there's scripture. Not that one. That's a good one, no. Did you get it? Something about wealth. Alright. Uh, do we have time to do this? Yeah. Foolishness. I'm gonna plug it in here. Oh, okay. Boom doo. Alright, open them up. 
and then open open you're like a, yeah yeah open folder and then valley worship uh, creatively named you have to minimize that please consider among yourself the wonderful things I've already oh there it just came up go ahead just go ahead and minimize you'll be good all right in valley worship okay cool thank you boop boop and then there should be some wealth thing. Come on, it's sinking, it's sinking, it's sinking, it's sinking. It's coming up. All right. And there would be wealth inequality. In the there you go. That's it. Great. Thank you. Here There's we go. I saw recently that I can't get out of my head. Well, it's a wrong. Harvard business professor and economist asked more than 5,000 Americans how they thought wealth was distributed in the United States. This is what they said they thought it was. Dividing it. Gonna mess it up for the rest of the service. You want help or are you good? I think I can just get out of the slideshow for a second. All right. All right, get desktop over here. Oh, back to the show. There you go. Try that. Where is it? There's a chart I saw recently. Yeah, there you go. I can't get out of my head. A Harvard business professor and economist asked more than 5,000 Americans how they thought wealth was distributed. Yeah, it's going to have to catch up. Hold on here. We did in the United States. This is what they said they thought it was. Dividing the country into five rough groups of the top, bottom, and middle three 20% groups, they asked people how they thought the wealth in this country was divided. Then we asked them what they thought was the ideal distribution. And 92%, that's at least 9 out of 10 of them, said it should be more like this. In other words, more equitable than they think it is. Now that fact is telling, admittedly, the notion that most Americans know that the system is already skewed unfairly. But what's most interesting to me is the reality compared to our perception. The ideal is as far removed from our perception of reality as the actual distribution is from what we think exists in this country. So ignore the ideal for a moment. Here's what we think it is again. And here is the actual distribution. Shockingly skewed. Not only do the bottom 20% and the next 20%, the bottom 40% of Americans barely have any of the wealth. I mean, it's hard to even see them on the chart. But the top 1% has more of the country's wealth than 9 out of 10 Americans believe the entire top 20% should have. Mind-blowing. But let's look at it another way, because I find this chart kind of difficult to wrap my head around. Instead, let's reduce the 311 million Americans to just a representative 100 people. Make it simple. Here they are. Teachers, coaches, Firefighters, construction workers, engineers, doctors, lawyers, some investment bankers, a CEO, maybe a celebrity or two. Now let's line them up according to their wealth. Poorest people on the left, wealthiest on the right, just a steady row of folks based on their net worth. We'll color code them like we did before based on which 20% quintile they fall into. Now let's reduce the total wealth of the United States, which was roughly $54 trillion in 2009, to this symbolic pile of cash. 
and let's distribute it among our 100 Americans. Well, here's socialism, all the wealth of the country distributed. Ah! We all know that won't work. We need to encourage people to work and work hard to achieve that good old American dream and keep our country moving forward. So, here's that ideal we asked everyone about. Something like this curve. This isn't too bad. We've got some incentive as the wealthiest folks are now about 10 to 20 times better off than the poorest Americans. But hey, even the poor folks aren't actually poor since the poverty line has stayed almost entirely off the chart. We have a super healthy middle class with a smooth transition into wealth. And yes, Republicans and Democrats alike chose this curve. Nine out of 10 people, 92%, said this was a nice, ideal distribution of America's wealth. But let's move on. This is what people think America's wealth distribution actually looks like. Not as equitable, clearly, but for me, even this still looks pretty great. Yes, the poorest 20 to 30% are starting to suffer quite a lot compared to the ideal, and the middle class is certainly struggling more than they were, while the rich and wealthy are making roughly a hundred times that of the poorest Americans and about ten times that of the still healthy middle class. Sadly, this isn't even close to the reality. Here is the actual distribution of wealth in America. The poorest Americans don't even register. They're down to pocket change. And the middle class is barely distinguishable from the poor. In fact, even the rich between the top 10 and 20 percentile are worse off. Only the top 10% are better off. And how much better off? So much better off that the top 2 to 5% are actually off the chart at this scale. And the top 1%, this guy, well his stack of money stretches 10 times higher than we can show. Here's his stack of cash, restacked, all by itself. This is the top 1% we've been hearing so much about. So much green in his pockets that I have to give him a whole new column of his own because he won't fit on my chart. 1% of America has 40% of all the nation's wealth. The bottom 80%, eight out of every 10 people, or 80 out of these 100, only has 7% between them. And this has only gotten worse in the last 20 to 30 years. While the richest 1% take home almost a quarter of the national income today, in 1976, they took home only 9%, meaning their share of income has nearly tripled in the last 30 years. The top 1% own half the country's stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. The bottom 50% of Americans own only half a percent of these investments, which means they aren't investing. They're just scraping by. I'm sure many of these wealthy people have worked very hard for their money. But do you really believe that the CEO is working 380 times harder than his average employee? N not his lowest paid employee, not the janitor, but the average earner in his company. The average worker needs to work more than a month to earn what the CEO makes in one hour. We certainly don't have to go all the way to socialism to find something that is fair for hardworking Americans. We don't even have to achieve what most of us consider might be ideal. All we need to do is wake up and realize that the reality in this country is not at all what we think it is. Bidoom! Bam! Look at that. All right, that was that was uh, ten years ago, and uh, it's worse now.
if you can imagine. Now, is that political? Well, if your politics is greed, yeah, yeah, it's political. Um, so what are we gonna, what are we going to do? Um, remember that our guy in the in the scripture was about security uh, and worried about security, and he built bigger barns for security and said, "Eat, drink, and be merry." I used to when I was more annoying than I am now. I know it's hard to imagine, but. I used to go around and say, you know, eat, drink, and be merry is in the Bible. It's right there in the Bible. I tell everybody that. They go, oh, yeah, really? I go, yeah, the next verse says, and then God said, you fool, right after her. So got to kind of read more than one verse in the Bible. Uh, that'd be good. All right, but Ernest Block says this, uh, back, back early in the 1900s. The most tragic form of loss isn't the loss of security, it's the loss of the capability, capacity, to imagine that things could be different. The most tragic form of loss is not what that guy felt in the story of Jesus, that a loss of security. It's a loss of the capability, the capacity, to imagine that things could be different. Do we have that? Are we, are we tragic, more tragic than the person in our story, in that had everything, and then died the next day. We could even be more tragic. That's not Bible, but I think that's true. We can imagine things. How could things be different? Well, on an individual level, certainly, we can spread the wealth around. We can do things that are not concentrated. Maybe, just maybe, oh my gosh, it's so easy to order from Amazon, but maybe we don't want Jeff Bezos to have traveling to Mars money when other people don't have traveling to the grocery store money. Maybe we don't want to buy everything on Amazon. Maybe. Maybe we could do other things too about choosing where we spend our money, choosing who. Maybe we tip more. You know, tip used to be to ensure promptitude. Did you know that's what it stood for? To ensure promptitude. I think that was reverse engineer. I don't think it started that. Uh, and it came out, well, it came out with the prohibition and they quit, the bars quit selling drinks and they figured out they weren't making money. So they cut the wages of the workers and the workers didn't have any money. So they had to say, everybody throw some money to the worker because we're not paying them anymore. Uh, but now I think tip serves to ensure, uh, to ensure poverty. Because if you're working for tips, <laughs> you're going to be in poverty. So I, we were at a conference, all the big big thinkers of the Presbyterian Church uh, had a conference for training. And, you know, we, we were at a conference center and they, and they said, should we leave something for the, for the housekeeping staff when we check out? And the person says, well, you know, the tip is included in your, in your uh, registration fee and we do, we do put on a gratuity. But I want to tell you, none of these people are making too much money. So if you want to leave something, go ahead. Maybe you want to do that. But how about some more specific examples? Christy. Well, there's Warren Buffett. Have you heard of Warren Buffett? I talked about him earlier. That man is, even though he's having so much trouble, uh, giving away his money. You know how much money Warren Buffett has given away in his lifetime? What do you think? What would be a lot of money to give away if you were really rich? What do you think? How much? One million. One million. Do we have any? It's higher. Anybody? 10 million. 10 million. Higher still. 50 million. That'd be a lot. Million. Yeah, he's given 42 billion with a B dollars away in his lifetime. 
The man still has almost 100 million. He can't, can't stop making money, poor guy. In fact, Warren Buffett has, has so much money that he's hired Bill Gates, who's a billionaire on his own, to spend his money. He, he actually gives money to Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to go ahead and spend it for him on things like third world health and all that. In fact, Warren Buffett is behind something called the Giver's Pledge. And what that is, he invites millionaires and billionaires to pledge. It's not a legal contract or anything like that, but they have a letter and it's all public and all that. You can look it up, givingpledge.org. And these people pledge to give away half of their fortune during their lifetime or when they die. At least half. He's getting a handful of billionaires and millionaires to sign up for you. You can look it up on the, on the website. And they have a little letter about what they're doing and how they're giving away their money. So maybe, but, Christy, you say, we're not billionaires. We're not millionaires. We're very scraping by. Come on. What else can we do? Well, there's a, there's a the guy and his wife uh, in Akron, Ohio. Akron, Ohio, where they shoot black people with 60 bullets if they run away from the police. My hometown. Uh, I gotta find it. Dwayne, Dwayne and Lisa. Dwayne and Lisa just had a heart for ministry and decided they needed to do something for race relations and the poor relations. And so they took their family of four, hello, and bought a house in the poorest, awfulest, most neglected neighborhood in Akron, Summit Lake. Summit Lake, at, during the 2008, when everything fell apart and the money and all that, you could buy a house in Summit Lake for $1. They had $1 houses at Summit Lake because no one wanted to live at Summit Lake. $1. Well, I don't know what he paid, but he got a pretty good deal, but that was later on. That was earlier on, 1998. He moved his uh, family there and started working in the community. He started out with a bike shop. He brought the neighborhood kids in, got some donated bikes, and says, hey, you work enough hours on fixing those bikes and learning how to use the bikes and being a good person, you can take the bike home with you. And he's still doing this now, 25 years later, but also it's moved into an entire, uh, what, they call, what they call re-entry um, ministry, in that they take the people, in fact, they've got a little building, it's called the Front Porch, um, it's a cafe, it's a coffee shop, it's a rehabilitation center, it's, it's within walking distance of the jail. And a lot of folks come right out of the jail. They don't have a job. They don't have prospects. They don't have anything. And go to the front porch. And the front porch finds them a job, gives them a job, puts them to work, does something, gets them. They have a recovery meeting on Sunday. Uh, and, and that is his retirement. I mean, that's what Dwayne and Lisa did with their money. They made the front porch, and they got the foundation, they got employees, and they got things, and they got the 5013C in about 10 years, but they started out in ministry, and they moved to the worst neighborhood in Akron, and sit, and then, they're, oh, they're a couple of white, white, good white people, and uh, lived there, and gained the trust of the community, and worked with the community, and brought a ministry. That's the barn he built. What about something a little closer to home? We're not all from Akron, Ohio, Christy. Although everybody could be, should be, and it's a sad thing you are not. But we have uh, Carson City. Uh, ten years, I'm in my tenth year at Computer Core. 
Computer Core is run by Ron Norton. Ron Norton uh, is an amazing guy with great talents, former Army drill instructor, among other things. So he's got a little of that, a little of that sprinkled in there. Uh, and what he did when it was time for him to retire, and took his retirement, and he, if you will, founded Computer Core. He got donations, and he got a house, and he started making uh, computers available to senior citizens, because back there, seniors didn't know about them, mouse and graphics, and back there, 25 years ago. He started out with that. He started refurbishing committees. He started saying, hey, give me your own computers. He got his own computers, taught people how to refurbish them, and then sell them at a cheap rate to people that don't have the computer. 25 years later, he's got four different locations. He's got a over a 1,000 computers uh, a month coming in, they're refurbished and they're sent out and they're sold and people are rehabilitated. People, again, are coming out uh, even before the, instead of jail, they get to go to community service at Computer Court. He feeds them six, six hot meals uh, a week, daily lunches, has a food pantry, runs there, a rehabilitation things. And I said, I said, Ron, you know, the man's getting old. I mean, I'm old. He's, yeah, really there. And I said, Ron, you know, what are you going to do? And how long are you going to do this? You know, he's there six, six seven days a week. Uh, on Sundays, he's up there rolling supplies. And I said, Ron, Ron, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, this, this is my retirement. <laughs> I, I took all my retirement money, and that's what you see around here. <laughs> I got nowhere to go. <laughs> this is what I'm retired from. This is what... This is what I got to do. Uh, he lives at the original house, um, along with other people in various modes of employee, volunteer, rehabilitation. Um, and that's how he built his barn. And how he invests. And how he answers the question. When you're gone, whose would this be? Maybe that's all you need to do, you know, uh, to overcome our uh, our propensity to greed and security and material things is to ask yourself all these things I have prepared if my life was gone today whose would they be? What have I done for others? How am I rich toward God? And the commentators that wrote the Bible put in at the end those our good question, did God get you yourself in the place where God calls you a fool? Never, never a good thing. So what can you do? You can, you can uh, refinance. You can say, I'm not uh, like the, the billionaires and the millionaires. Anybody can do this. I mean, right now, I'm in Valley Bishop, and I don't want to say I'm a saint or nothing. I'm not. Uh, um, in fact, this is what I do because I'm not a saint. Uh, I'm here in Valley Bishop, and I'm the ch my church home is an Episcopal church in Carson City, and I'm rarely there. In fact, it's getting so they have to pay me to be there. They have to, they have to hire me for a Sunday, and I go, well, I got that Sunday free. But every Sunday, uh, my tithe is there. My contribution is there. And you can think about that. One of the, uh, one of the uh, cures, if you were, treatments for greed is to start percentage giving. It doesn't have to be 10%. It doesn't have to be a tithe. I haven't done the math yet. I didn't really need to do that. But if you can commit yourself to a certain percentage of your income going to other people, the church is fine, nonprofits, whatever, it, that, any of that would help your greed and your barn building. 
is by thinking about percentage given um, to worthy to something that will go on beyond you. You can reinvest. And like Warren Buffett says, and he should know he's got more money than most of us, than about everybody but seven people in the world, you could say, uh, this is my money, I'm just holding on to it while I'm here, and move it to other people. So you can set up automatic giving. Um, you've got to watch that. There's some, some dangers in that or some things. And also, uh, if you notice, that was an Episcopal church, and I'm a little embarrassed because I'm giving money to the Episcopal church, and I'm Presbyterian. So I also give money to the Presbyterian Church PCUSA mission. I have a missionary I support. Um, and that's not because I'm wonderful. It's because I'm horrible. <laughs> if I didn't set that up automatically, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> and I didn't do it. And I would go to the Episcopal Church and I would look at Betty Lynn. And I go, we haven't been there in two months. And we owe this. Oh, my gosh, I'm not writing that check. <laughs> Ow! So we do that. So you can reinvest your money. And pledge to yourself, like even, you don't have to be a billionaire. You can pledge to yourself. Pledge. Look at it. Woo. It's not a legally binding contract. Woo, there it is again. You can say to yourself, and you can write, even write yourself a little letter. I don't have a website. And you can say, I'm going to give this much away. It doesn't have to be 50% like the billionaires. But it can, be, can it be 2%? Can it be 1%? The important thing is that it's going to be regular and it's going to be a percentage and you're going to commit. I don't care. You know, if, you, if last year you gave, let's say last year you gave to something uh, $1,000. Maybe you're going to go by percentage and that turns out to be $800. I think that's a better gift. Not just if you're in the mood saying, I'm committed and I'm going to do that. Reinvest. You can also rebuild. Uh, rebuild. I, didn't, I didn't say rebuild, but at Computer Core they rebuild. And what they do, they take chances on all sorts of people. When I showed up there, imagine, if you will, I showed up there, minister without a church, coming to Nevada without a job. That is very suspect. Why were you kicked out of the church? Who hates you? What have you done? I mean, that is, that is an obvious question. And they gave me a chance. And after a year, I got the key to the place. I tried to not take it, but now I still have it. But rebuild. And they just don't rebuild computers. They take people there who have never had a job, that have never been outside their home, and they take them in and they show them how to work a time clock and they show them how to show up and how to leave. They give them a lunch and they show them how to clock out for lunch and clock in for lunch. And you believe there's a lot of people that don't know how to do these things. And then when they leave, they got one line on their resume and they got a reference from Ron. And so many people have gone through there and we... Our best volunteers we lose because they go out and get somebody paid for what we trained them to do. So you can refurbish. You can invest in other people. Invest in other people that are really maybe not worth the investment. And we've had some bad things that happens. Uh, you can also, uh, one more. Oh, um, it's kind of like the re-entry as well in that you let people back into life, figures out how they get back into life. Uh, that's, what they, that's what they do at um, South, I didn't say it, Southside Ministries in Akron. They figure out how to get people back into things. Uh, maybe you're in recovery, maybe you support someone in recovery, maybe you host a recovery group at, at a church or somewhere. But maybe we can figure out how to get people back on their feet again. And what can be done to help people instead of blame them? 
there's a little program up in Carson City called Circles. And what the Circles does is uh, not so much as giving money to the poor people, but they have the poor people and the people that are struggling, the people that almost have the first and last month rent, almost to come up and to come and to, they have, they have dinner and they have training and they ask them, what do you need to do to get a job? What he goes, well, one time they said, everybody wants us to know PowerPoint. We don't know how to do that. Or we don't have a computer. So we had a class on PowerPoint. Everybody learned how to use PowerPoint. And they could have another thing on the resume, re-entry. Where are you putting the stuff of your life? What barns are you building? When you leave, who's the things you have prepared, who will they be? Think about that. And God and Jesus will not call you a fool. <laughs> you will not be a fool. You will be blessed. Amen.